I'm now joined by Professor Farish Noor, a political scientist and historian who's the associate professor at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies, as well as the School of History at the NTU in Singapore. Professor, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first off, can you tell us a bit about how you became invested in the decolonizing movement? What was your entry point into this? Uh, all right. So first and foremost, um, let me just uh, uh, very briefly uh, tell you where I'm coming from. Um, my academic background actually was in uh, philosophy and literature, and it was from philosophy that I later moved on to area studies and then political theory and political science. So I've always had an abiding interest um, in philosophy and the philosophical questions that we find in political history and political science. And I am now teaching Southeast Asian history and politics here at my department at NTU. Um, so, so in a sense, um, I don't think I set out to perform or do decolonization in a sense. I mean, what I am, I mean, I basically teach Southeast Asian history and politics. However, I believe that in the course of teaching Southeast Asian history and politics, one cannot get around the question of empire. You have to address it. There is absolutely no way that we can talk about Southeast Asia today without addressing the legacy of empire and colonialism. And that, in a sense, you know, um, brought me to where I am now, where I I'm actively engaged in asking questions uh, about, you know, how did Southeast Asia come about? Why is Southeast Asia the way it is today? Uh, what are the forces, the actors, the institutions, the agents that constructed this thing that we now call Southeast Asia? And invariably, these questions become political questions, because I don't think you can ever have history that doesn't touch on politics and power. So in terms of, like you say, where you situate yourself, was there anything any particular moment that you can identify, any sort of realization that sparked your desire to become invested in the movement? Well, actually, ironically, it's it's linked to the very first paper that I published in my 20s that was actually published in the Journal of Southeast Asia Research from SOAS. Uh, this was when I was... Um, still a young lad, you know, uh, uh, doing my PhD, uh, and I was um, struck, my, my, my doctoral thesis was about the evolution of, of uh, anti-colonial nationalism in, in British Malaya, and in the course of, of uh, researching and writing my PhD, um, I was reading as widely as I could, and I wrote a paper that was about um, the sort of, if you like, nostalgic travelogues that were then popular in the popular media or popular press uh, in England at the time. So there were people uh, you know, producing these books about all these uh, so-called you know, um, travelers who had traveled to Southeast Asia. And I, I was struck by the fact that none of these books mentioned the fact that these uh, so-called travelers or explorers or adventurers or what have you were all directly implicated in empire. They were either advocates of empire, they were supporters of empire, or they were themselves, you know, conscious imperialists uh, who were not simply walking around Southeast Asia, you know, um, like tourists, but they were actively involved in the whole process of empire building. And that, um, for me, was was a sort of revelation. It, it, it struck me that 
even then, and this is way back in the 1990s, you know, um, um, you know, there were still publishers who were publishing these sort of nostalgic, you know, travelogues about, I don't know, uh, people, quote unquote, exploring or quote unquote, you know, discovering Southeast Asia. And I thought, you know, come on, obviously, you know, there are some huge blind spots here. For a start, you know, Southeast Asia was never discovered. There were already Southeast Asians there. So. Uh, that made me ask questions. Okay, what's going on here? What is actually going on? And of course, you have to remember, you know, and going back now to the 80s and the 90s, these were the, the dark days of Margaret Thatcher. There was a, a court sort of, you know, revival of empire. Uh, then there was a lot of imperial nostalgia. You know, you had, you know, Jewel in the Crown. You had uh, the Far Pavilions, and 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 um, there was somehow. Even then, in the late 80s and the 90s, uh, an attempt to whitewash uh, this period of history. And I thought, hang on, no, surely this deserves, you know, a sustained critique because, you know, I was then writing about the development of anti-colonial thought in Southeast Asia. Uh, so, so in a sense, if you want, you know, that was one of the, the initial turning points in my career because I was schooled in, in philosophy. So so I was reading Wittgenstein and Foucault and what have you. But I thought, hang on, this is this is where I need to apply this. You know, I, there's no point reading uh, you know Foucault about power and power differentials and power relations if 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 this is not applied to a context. And and the context that I was interested in was the historical construction of Southeast Asia. Has that kind of changed a lot since you began? I mean, you're, you're talking about this being sort of very early on in your career. Would you say that that sort of rose-tinted sort of colonial nostalgic perception of Southeast Asia has shifted, evolved since then? Or do you find that that's still omnipresent? Oh, it, it, it's still here. It's something that I raise again and again. Uh, but let me add a bit more nuance to that, if, if I may. I think the problem that I see in Southeast Asia today, as presently constituted, um, is that much of this, um, you know, the legacy of empire, be it in the geography or the vocabulary or the epistemology of, of empire, still persists in the post-colonial present. And this has been the other side of my critique all along, that one of the greatest ironies of empire is that you know, empire lives on in the post-colonial world because the post-colonial subjects continue to to repeat this. And this is something that anyone who's familiar with Southeast Asia, uh, I think, would intuitively know what I'm talking about. There is, uh, ironically, today, you know, a, a kind of uh, you know um, indirect you know um, uh, nostalgia or celebration of empire comes in the form of you know contemporary tourism. Uh, I, uh, advertising on TV, whenever you have luxury products being sold, for instance, you know, in Southeast Asia, they'll always have, you know, this thing, whether it's some kind of coffee or some kind of car or whatever, you know, posed next to a colonial building, because there's that chain of associations being made that, oh, this, this, you know, this period in the past was somehow, you know, elegant or, or pretty or so they in a sense, they've prettified it. And in the process of doing that, you know, I mean, no one's talking about, you know, the wars, the killings, the the exploitation, the, the forced labor. All of that seems to have been swept under the carpet. Why has it been swept under the park carpet? I think if you if you look at Southeast Asia, yeah, uh, and, and here let's talk a bit about, you know, post-colonial Southeast Asian historiography. Um, I've always wondered why this was the case myself. 
And I think the simplest explanation I can come up with is, is this. In the 1940s and 50s and 60s, when one by one the countries of Southeast Asia gained independence, the first generation of post-colonial historians um, were engaged in the process of writing their respective national histories. So the history of Indonesia focuses on Indonesia. The history of, of, of uh, Vietnam focuses on Vietnam. The history of Singapore focuses on Singapore. Um, now, in the process, you understand that. It's, it is <clears throat> understandable because, in a sense, that generation had succeeded. They they had captured the state. The objective of state capture had been achieved, and obviously they wanted to celebrate that. But in the process of doing that, there, there's somehow this implicit assumption that colonialism is over. And, and because the old imperial flag is gone, the imperial gunboats are gone, the imperial armies are gone, and so it's over. Now let's move on to another chapter. Now, unfortunately, of course, you know, historians, particularly historians today, will tell you that history is not episodic, so it's never a clean break. And I think in the process of that, then a lot of the vocabularies of the 18th and 19th centuries um, continue until today, and they pop up then in histories, in advertising, in media campaigns, in movies. Uh, and, and so somehow empire is never gone. It's still lurking there and it makes an appearance again and again. And, and that specific topic, I mean, what the decolonizing movement has sort of hit the headlines very much here, uh, particularly brought to the fore, I think, by the global BLM movement. What does decolonizing mean to you coming from your particular context? All right. So from, from the outset, how do I put this? I, I can't, I'm not a professional decolonizer. Decolonizing is not my job. I'm not, I'm not a paid decolonizer. I'm a historian and I teach history and politics of Southeast Asia. But in the process of teaching history and politics of Southeast Asia, if we are going to do that properly, we have to address empire. There's no way we can get around this. There is absolutely no way I can talk about Southeast Asia today without touching upon the realities of you know, colonial rule and, and, and empire in the past, because these were the factors that have shaped Southeast Asia to make it what it is now. So, so how does the decolonizing conversation change the way you talk about those things? Ah, okay. Let me uh, maybe explain how, how I approach the subject of Southeast Asia, right? So, there has been a sort of conventional way of teaching Southeast Asia. So you sign up, you know, you sign up for your Southeast Asia course and, and, and week one, um, you know, the lecturer says, okay, this is Southeast Asia. He points to a map or she points to a map and says, okay, this thing, this object in front of you is what we call Southeast Asia. And now let's talk about this object. You know, it's like going to a, 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 an automobile class and the teacher teaches you about cars. This is, okay, this object in front of you, this is a car. All right, and let's drive a car. Now that's one way of teaching it. But I think that to teach Southeast Asia, we should begin by problematizing the very concept of Southeast Asia itself. So in my classes, you know, the very first week, I start with uh, uh, this comment and I said, look, over the next 14 weeks, we're going to be talking about Southeast Asia. By the end of the 14 weeks, we will not be able to answer the question, what is Southeast Asia? But if we do this correctly, we will understand why 
we cannot answer that question. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to problematize the concept of Southeast Asia itself, beginning with the very word. I mean, why should Southeast Asia even be called Southeast Asia? You know, in the pre-colonial period, this part of the world was called many things, you know, Suvarnabhumi, Nusantara. You know, Southeast Asians never saw themselves as being southeast of anyone. So who, who gave us this, this identity? Who placed these coordinates upon us? Now, if Southeast Asia is southeast of Asia, someone located us there. And who is that? What are the powers? What are the agencies involved? How was this location naming you know, uh, done? And when you do that, this is when we start talking about empire. Because then you see how the, 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 the division of Asia, you know, to Central Asia, South Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, these were not in the hands of Asians, you know, the, the, the Asian continent, the, the Asian continent that people like K.N. Chaudhuri talks about, you know, this vast Indian Ocean world was basically cut into, you know, um, neat little blocks uh, by powers based in, you know, London, Paris, The Hague and what have you. And uh, that's how the whole world was carved up. So that's another way of teaching Southeast Asia. Yeah, so just on that note, I mean, I'm hearing the idea of obviously decentering empire from the histories of the former colonies in, in particular. I mean, if you were going to give a sort of succinct definition of decolonizing, what, what would be your, your, your go-to dictionary def- definition of the decolonizing movement as, as you uh, apply it in your work, or at least as, as how you'd like to see it applied? Uh well, say in the context of, of my own work, I, I suppose decolonization for me is is a bit like deconstruction, where you have to disassemble something and put it back together again in order to understand the constructiveness of the thing. So likewise, for me, Southeast Asia is not a given. And, I, and the reason why I think this is important is because when you look at other disciplines like international relations or, or political science, um, you know, regions are always presented as is. So Southeast Asia is a thing. Uh, Europe is a thing. East Asia is a thing. So they are ontologically given, they are fixed, they are definite, and they have very clear boundaries. Uh, frankly, I think that's nonsense. You know, I mean, why should Southeast Asia stop at Burma and not spill into Assam or Manipur or what have you? You know, it goes on and on and on. So for me, decolonization, therefore, um, a, a working uh, a definition for me would be the need to recognize how colonization has, uh, you know, through the use of, of you know, its, its power differentials and the inequalities built into it, you know, constructed uh, these categories, these geographies that today we need to interrogate uh, very, very thoroughly in order to understand how we are, what we are, and how we got to where we are today. So what's at stake, you know, for those who are listening who might not be invested in this particular field and who are sort of thinking, well, this is a, a kind of tremendous process of deconstruction and, you know, um, uh, why? What? What are the stakes here? Why is this so important? Why is decolonizing uh, essential from your perspective, or not? Well, you know, first of all, I don't think it's a massive undertaking at all. I, I think it's completely mundane. Uh, look, I have to teach. I mean, I do teach the history of Southeast Asia. Like I said, 
I can't teach the Saudi history of Southeast Asia unless we talk about empire. So for me, it's just, you know, par for the course. It's just part and parcel of what I do. There's nothing, you know, um, staggeringly complex or difficult about this. I mean, how, how, how difficult is it to digest the idea that the very term Southeast Asia itself is something that was imposed on Southeast Asians? I don't think that's a difficult step at all. But the reason why I think this is actually important uh, is because if we do not do this, right, then, then basically we are in danger, like I said earlier, of perpetuating precisely these vocabularies and geographies and epistemologies uh, that we've inherited in a very uncritical way. So to go back to my example earlier about, you know, learning about cars. Just to be concrete then, to, yeah, specific about what that means if you don't deconstruct these histories and epistemologies. Well, let, let me give an analogy, okay, um, to go back to the example I gave earlier about learning how to drive cars. There are two ways you can learn how to drive a car. You can, someone can say, okay, I'm going to learn how to drive a car. Here's a car. Go in, you know, the, turn the key, the, turn the steering wheel, press the clutch, whatever, zoom, off you go. Okay, so you can. You can, you can continue driving the car without even knowing how the car works. But let's say you really want to understand how a car works, then you can be, you know, thorough. Then you say, let's, let's, Let's open the boot. Let's look at the engine. Let's disassemble the engine. When you do that, then you actually understand what the car is. You see, you understand how the car actually works. Now, my problem, and I think this is not just confined to, to, to you know, area studies or, 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 or history, but it, it spills into many other domains like international relations. It spills into to, to political theory and political science is that, you know, we are all on autopilot all the time. Um, one thing I, I cannot abide when, when I read, you know, uh, political analysis from, from, you know, people in IR, for instance, is how, you know, nation states are always presented as, as a given. So you talk about the foreign policy of country A against country B. But, but these things don't just drop out of the sky. They are not stuck in the present. They are the result of long processes that we need to understand. So the, the trade-off, therefore, is, you know, do you really want to understand the world? Do you really want to understand, you know, where you are, why you're doing what you're doing and where these ideas came from in the first place? It's perfectly all right. It is perfectly all right. Human beings are capable of, of living, you know, their, their, their lives without knowing what they do. In fact, most people actually just go on living their lives without knowing what they do and why they do it. But are the, are the implications not the fact that there is a connection to the constructions of whether nation-based or more global forms of inequality? And that those inequalities then become dehistoricized so that we aren't necessarily aware of why particular things are happening. I mean, I'd be interested to hear, for example, how you think decolonizing might fit into how we might understand uh, what's happening, for example, to the Rohingya or, or uh, what's happening in Burma. So, so what does a decolonial perspective, for example, bring to that conversation that we might otherwise be missing? Well, what it brings to it, I mean, and here by, by, by you know, uh, by decolonization, we're talking about, you know, a thorough understanding of history that takes into account the impact of colonization and empire, right? So if you look at the state of, 
let's let's focus on Asia now. We have, you know, um, religious tension, ethnic tension, ethno-nationalism. Uh, there are there are all kinds of you know populist forms of politics that very easily, very quickly translate into uh, you know some nasty forms of majoritarian politics. But all these things have a history. So if you look at the way in which, say, the Rohingyas in 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 Myanmar are, are, are treated, unfortunately, like it or not, you know, this this has a history that goes back to the period of British rule after the first and second and the third Anglo-Burmese wars of the 1820s, 1850s, and 1885. After which, Britain, the empire, you know, uh, uh, basically imposed a kind of divided rule policy uh, uh, by um, creating a colonial security force in Myanmar, in Burma at the time, uh, that was made up of South Asians. Now, the moment you do that, of course, you're, you're pitting one group of Asians against another. And after empire is over and the imperial power leaves, uh, you can't expect that sort of situation um, you know, to, to simply continue without it uh, breaking at one point. And this is what we're seeing today. So much of this antagonism you know, dates back to um, the emergence of Burman Buddhist nationalism. Remember, yeah, uh, you know, the first among the first instances of anti-British uh, nationalism in Burma were attacks not against uh, British administrators but against um, South Asian uh, merchant communities in places like Rangoon because they were seen as the tools of empire. You can see the same thing happening in other parts of Southeast Asia, the way in which the Dutch, for instance, uh, employed Chinese in Java as tax collectors because the Dutch imperial power doesn't want to do that dirty work. So they get one group of Asians to tax another group of Asians. Now, what are you doing? That's basically divide and rule. Yeah, it goes back to the Roman Empire. And, and people like Furnival call this a plural economy. Well, that's a polite way of, of of describing what is basically a systematic uh, you know, uh, uh, effort to pit different ethnic groups against one another so that those colonized subjects will never be united. And as long as they are not united, the, you know, the imperial status quo remains. Um, and, and because we've not had this discussion, because we've not asked these questions, you know, how did these people come here? Uh, what was, what were the mechanics of, you know, colonial capital? What were the mechanics of migration during the period of empire? Then all these things, you know, get brushed under the carpet, and unfortunately, they don't go away because, because when 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 the economy fails or where there's a political crisis, suddenly these things, you know, reappear and they very quickly get instrumentalized and weaponized. And, and that's what we are seeing, not only in Southeast Asia, but in many other parts of Asia as well. And, and actually, if I can bring you into some of those, um, it's interesting you mentioned kind of in, in, in sort of periods of tensions, whether economic or otherwise. And I think obviously COVID is another uh, pressure uh, that's pushing, pushing societies um, to sometimes maybe confront certain issues that weren't uh, being addressed. I'm thinking here, for example, in the UK, around BLM, we've had lots of debates around the removal of controversial statues. Um, and I was wondering whether you might be able to provide some insights uh, from Asia where the decolonizing movement has been at play for a while, and, and maybe looks differently uh, if you were going to compare, you know, Vietnam and Indonesia. Are there any lessons that we can take here in Europe from those processes? And, and what does that look like, as, as I mentioned, if you're going to compare two different, um, uh, two different countries that have been undergoing that process and their approaches? Um, 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Indonesia and Vietnam because I think these these two countries actually um, went through very very different types or, or processes of decolonization. And uh, let's link this to the issue of statues. First, first of all, just let me say that I, I hate statues in general. I mean, generally they are ugly, and 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 it's all just men with guns and jackboots, and 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 I, I've got no liking for any of them, to be honest. But um, the question is, you know, how do we approach these these not just statues, but monuments, buildings, parks, you know, um, right now in Indonesia. In the 1940s, uh, partly because of the violence that took place during the Indonesian War of Independence, but also partly because of the fervor of Indonesian nationalists, um, you know, a, a lot of that colonial stuff was just destroyed. I mean, you know, the, the buildings were demolished, uh, uh, statues were toppled, uh, parks and roads were renamed, and and to, to be honest, I've got. I've got no problems with renaming these things. I don't see why a park in Jakarta has to be named after, you know, some Dutch mass murderer, to be honest. Uh, so, so there was a lot of that. However, here's the problem, right? This leads us to the, to, to the, the, the problem I mentioned earlier. It gives the, the impression that somehow, okay, the, the imperial flag is gone, the, the statues are gone, the buildings have been torn down. Uh, so, 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 you know, empire is over. Unfortunately, the logic of the colonial state remains because many post-colonial states, you know, that you know that, that we know in, in, in Asia, you know, are built upon the foundations of colonies. And and so here is where I think the real work of decolonization lies. Because if we don't interrogate the vocabularies of governance, the, the modality of governance, if the post-colonial state behaves in a manner that is no different from the colonial state, i.e., you know, it, it sees the environment as something to be exploited, it sees its people as 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 a mass that needs to be controlled, and then basically you're behaving like like a colonial power. This is Fanon, right? Black skins, white masks. It's, it's the the perpetuation of that colonial logic. Now, compare that to Vietnam, and 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 a lot of people believe that you know post you know 75 vietnam war is over everyone thought oh you know the communists have now won they're going to demolish everything but actually that's not the case if, if you look at um hanoi hanoi uh is is full of colonial architecture but if you look at how the vietnamese dealt with the colonial legacy it's actually interesting because in in so many ways, they were ahead of the of their time. Um, if you look at the um, uh, the administrative buildings, the 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 banks that the French built, uh, or even the the opera, the famous opera, you know, um, uh, in, in in Vietnam, which is based on the the um, opera Garnier in in Paris, they appropriated it, uh, and it's a way of saying that you know you're gone, you've lost because we've taken over. And, and we're going to redefine these things instead. We're going to give them a new layer of meaning. So I think there are many ways in which we can actually engage with uh, uh, the, the legacy of, of empire. And it's not just statues, like I said. You know, it's, 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 the, it's the barracks. It's the, the, the law courts that they built. It's the parks. It's the, it's the cricket grounds that they left behind. All of these things, I think, need to be constantly engaged with. Uh, but for that, of course, we need to put decolonization on the table because 
so what what kind of principles um would you put forward to guide the decolonizing movement when when it comes to approaching monuments from the past because i suppose some of the issues that we are grappling with here in the uk are things like you know the legacy of people uh who are considered to be part and parcel of you know the very core of british identity take someone like churchill um you know on one hand perceived as a war hero uh you know for those who would have um, survived the bengal famine you know definitely a different perception of the man how do you deal with these legacies in a way that is decolonized well again you know, decolonizing for me should not simply be a case of simple dialectics you know you don't replace one with another because if you do that you're still trapped in dialectics right so so you know it's not only black is white white is black or you know uh, one is two two is one i i think what we need to do is is really problematize this thing thank you for raising churchill as an example as you know there've been uh, quite a few movies on Churchill and, and a TV series on Churchill uh, in recent times. And, and for me, again, as someone who was in England, studying in England in the 80s and 90s, you know, during during the time of, you know, Jewel in the Crown and all that, you know, I, I see a continuity here. No one's ever thought of making a movie about Churchill during the Bengal famine. And, and you know, if there was anyone, I mean, if I had the money of Bill Gates, that's what I'll do. You know, I'll, I'll make a movie about Churchill seen through the eyes of, you know, someone in Bengal who's starving to death because of this man, you know, and, 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 and that, that's my attitude to these statues as well. Now, of course, I'm not going to tell people what to do these, with these statues, you know, because, because that's up to, you know, the different communities in England or, or America or what have you. But I've always felt that um, you know, statues are like texts. We reread them again. We don't read Jane Austen today the way Jane Austen was read 100 years ago, right? Today, when we read Jane Austen, uh, you, you, you then discover that her heroes are all basically, you know, slave-owning, you know, uh, repulsive characters who are, who are making their fortunes from sugar plantations in, in, in the West Indies. So, so we don't read Jane Austen uh, the way that, you know, she may have wanted us to read uh, her 100 years ago. Likewise, there's no reason why we should look at these statues today the way... But should we throw should we throw them out? Should we throw out Jane Austen and say, actually, do we want to be absorbing? No, no, not at all. Why, not? why would you want to throw out Jane Austen? I mean, I, I happen to enjoy Jane Austen, except that I, I think, you know, Mr. Darcy is one hell of a bastard, you know? But but that doesn't, that doesn't you know, diminish... Uh, I said, I think there might be some consensus on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but 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 so you see, we can again return. We can return. I don't believe we should remove these things because I need them for the debate. This is, you know, I can't, I can't teach the legacy of empire and and the damage that was done by empire by erasing it. This is crucial to the work I do as someone who teaches you know, the history and politics of Southeast Asia. Like I said, we're going to understand some of the issues, some of the problems that we have in Southeast Asia today, um, you know, including things like the destruction of the environment. All of this goes back to a certain way of viewing nature that is really an 18th century, 19th century, you know, um, you know, Western Enlightenment way of looking at nature as commodity, as something to be defeated, right? And so if we erase that, 
then then we are lost. We are without a compass. I have no problems, you know, reading Jane Austen, but but I read Jane Austen as someone living in 2020 would read her. Uh, and, and, and and likewise, you know, if, uh, what applies to Jane Austen applies to these statues. I have, you know, I, I mean, I, again, I'm not going to tell anyone what to do with statues, right? But if I had my way, I, I would have, you know, these long, uh, uh, you know, plaques attached to these statues and said, you know, by the way, this general so-and-so, you know, massacred um, 20,000 people here, 15,000 people there. This you know, person on this pedestal is responsible, directly responsible for the use of mustard gas, you know, in this village and, 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 and committed genocide. So I have no problems with that whatsoever, right? So, but I need the statue to be there to make that critique. So you know, some people have said, let's put them in in museums, and and uh, you know, and, uh, and and you could have a museum of empire, and, and basically it's kind of rogues gallery of of basically you know, um, you know criminals against humanity or what or, or what have you. But what concerns me is forgetting empire. That's what we cannot do. Yeah, on that note, can, can you offer any cautionary tales? I mean, the decolonizing movement here in, in the UK, in Europe, is really just beginning in many ways. Um, are there any critiques of the decolonizing movement? Sorry, let me say that again. Are there any critiques of the decolonizing movement that have emerged in Southeast Asia or any cautionary tales that you may have for those invested in the movement here? Um, well, a simple word of caution would be um, don't assume that because you know the the imperial flag is gone empire is over that's that's you know in one line you know i mean empire doesn't end just because the imperial army has left you know because it 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 manifests itself again in so many ways including the way in which global capital works today right so so for me we never left empire that's one but I think if 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 you want to uh, you know look at the future and and and, and um, you know I'm read I really see you know this as an opportune moment for us to to really return to some of these you know individuals figures events institutions and 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 basically you know offer a multi perspective approach to them like i said make a movie about churchill seen from the point of view of of a starving bengali family you know someone please do that i don't have the cash i'm a school teacher i can't afford it but if someone can please do that do that you know we need to 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 go back to these things but there's also one thing that we must remember and this is something i emphasize when i when i teach um, you know southeast asian history here when, it, when you said earlier that, you know, um, the, the decolonization movement is, in a sense, you know, beginning, uh, that's true and not true. There have always been critiques of empire. There have been critiques of empire. And, and it, it, in London itself, uh, you know, um, you had you know, bodies like the Society for the Protection of Aborigines, who, who were basically a kind of NGO, if you like, in the 19th century. Return to to what you said earlier, Miriam, about you know how you know decolonization is 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 something relatively new. Well, it's it's not really new, to be honest with you, and and this is something that I constantly emphasize. You know, when I teach uh, um, Southeast Asian history here in in Southeast Asia, you know, because there's also been a long history 
of a sustained critique against empire, even in the heart of empire itself. And I think in the in the process of this, right, you know, people are we are, we, are, we are ranting and we are angry at you know the Churchills and 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 the roads of the world, rightly so. But let's not also forget that you know there were there were organisations in London, for example, the Society for the Protection of Aborigines, uh, which was a sort of NGO of the 19th century. You know, it, it also had its political agenda, but it was targeting people like James Brooke for his you know colonization of Sarawak in Borneo. And then you had people like William Cobert. Nobody even remembers William Cobert anymore. But William Cobert went to jail many times. He was a pamphleteer. And interestingly enough, he described himself or thought of himself as a radical Tory then in the 19th century. And he was constantly critiquing you know, Britain's imperial ambitions abroad. When, when Britain conquered Java, in 1811, he was one of those who wrote against this and, and on the grounds that Britain then was the most dangerous country in the world. Now, these people have been forgotten as well. And I think let, we need to be fair and, 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 and objective here because empire only works through collaboration. So on the Asian side, I, I'm worried about the way in which anti-colonialism or decolonization has, in a sense, been appropriated by certain ethno-nationalist forces to somehow present this idea that, you know, everything Western is bad and everything Asian was, was good. Well, let's not forget that, you know, a few thousand Englishmen could not have ruled India without collaboration. A few thousand Dutchmen could not have controlled the whole of Indonesia without collaboration. This is also something that we need to discuss. And it's it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant because it implicates communities, it implicates individuals, it it may tarnish the reputation of, of some, but this is also part and parcel of history. History is messy. History is messy. And I don't want to ever teach neat history. I think neat history is basically fantasy. If you want that, then, you know, read, I don't know, Tolkien or something. But you know, history for me is a narrative that is necessarily messy. And I think we need to, to while we critique, of course, you know, the structures of, of empire and what have you, we need to be aware of the fact that, you know, empire lives on and it lives on also because of the collaboration of people today who may or may not be aware of how they are actually perpetuating empire in their own work. Thank you so much, Farish. I really, really appreciate your time. Happy to do this. Thank you, guys.